This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Once they found you with that color in that context, they were just set the whole car, the car ablaze with everybody inside. So I removed the collar and our bodies were just shivering. You know, we just, and my son was looking at me when I reduced the volume of the Christian music, when I raised the glasses and then I removed the collar. And this nine-year-old boy turned to me and he said, Daddy, what are you doing? Don't you want them to know you're a Christian? This is Matt Woodley with Monday Morning Preacher from PreachingToday.com. And I want to, in just a minute, introduce a very special guest and a friend of mine. But uh, just to say at the beginning that I've always felt like preachers in the United States, we can learn a lot from our global church brethren about preaching with courage, preaching with conviction, especially in the midst of opposition and persecution and deep challenges. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about today with my guest, Venerable Justice Okoromkwo. And Venerable Justice, it is so good to be reconnecting with you and to have you as a guest on this podcast. Thank you so much, Father Matt. I greet you all, our listeners. I assure you that I'm very grateful to be here with you. Venerable Justice is a Director of Missions for the Diocese of Jos, Nigeria. He's also the pastor of a local church, a vicar. He preaches regularly. So, Justice is in Jos, Nigeria. So let's get a little bit of the lay of the land of what you're dealing with there, Justice. And, and first of all, it's been a couple of years since we've seen each other. And I just want to say how delighted I am to reconnect with you and just how much I appreciate our friendship and our partnership in the gospel. Thank you so much, Father Math. We really appreciate the friendship we've had, particularly um, the support and the fellowship you've had when you visited within the time that we had a lot of crisis. And we count you as one of the friends that we have in Just Diocese. And I also want to acknowledge brethren from that part of the world, many of you that are aware of some of the challenges we have in this part of the world. And some of you may not have had the privilege of coming in physically, but you've been praying. And to assure you that God has been answering your prayers and that you continue to pray just as we also do pray for you. As Padamat just said, I'm Justice Okoronko, and uh, right here in Jos, where I'm serving, maybe you have heard a little bit about Jos. Jos is in the central part of Nigeria, and uh, Nigeria has been in the news right now for so many things that should make Christians be concerned. Of recent, the Global Terrorism Index placed Nigeria as being second in the world in terms of effects of terrorism and insurgency. In fact, the only country ahead of Nigeria is said to be Afghanistan right now. Wow. Prior to that, Nigeria had been number three for the past five years. But of recent, Nigeria has moved ahead of Iran. So it's actually number two right now in the world, according to that scoring format or parameter. So what is it? How does it feel like here? We don't really see, we may not look at it the way they're scoring. All we know is what we see here right now on the ground. And what we see on the ground is that the entire landscape is being ravaged by different groups of uh, terrorists. You have in the northeast the Boko Haram terrorists who have ravaged the entire northeastern part of Nigeria. Then you have in the northwest, you have, there's a lot of banditry going on and some Fulani militia who are involved in banditry, looting and killings in villages. Then the middle belt of Nigeria, 
which you find the, the, the farming areas. That is when you just come out of the savannah, you find these very good areas for farmers to be in. There's a lot of flash zones between Fulani militia and farmers. So a lot of killings have been going on there. Then you now have the southwest, southeast, and the south-south all being invaded again by the Fulani militia. So we have a lot of displaced people. Boko Haram alone is being said to be responsible for more than uh, 30,000 deaths, confirmed deaths. We, we say maybe to be conservative, maybe you're talking about between 20 to 27,000, but it's been said to be up to 30,000. But uh, displaced people, we have more than 2 million displaced people. That I can tell you is real. So where does just stand out in all these? When you look at the map of Nigeria, you could easily divide it at the center. And then the, the north is predominantly Islam. The Muslim faith is predominant in the north. And as the jihadists are trying to advance southwards, where they meet with a resistant Christian population is around Jos, which is in the middle belt. So the fault line is in this area. So that's where the bomb started detonating about a decade ago when they vowed that these pockets of Christian communities must be conquered if the movement down south is going to be real. And that is why just people faced some of those atrocious acts of churches being burnt, churches being bombed, lootings, killings, all done by the, the militia. So that is exactly where we are. Jos is the headquarter of Jos province, and the province covers the entire northeastern Nigeria, which is the area that has been invaded by Boko Haram. So it means, again, that I do go around to some of those dioceses that are in very hostile regions, sometimes just to encourage them to see what is going on, get information, get statistics, and through also trying to do advocacy for, for some of them. So that is a little picture of where we are. So I have quite some rural areas under the archdeaconry. We have also had victims within our own uh, segment too. I've had a church being burnt that is under me. Three people were killed. And then some other archdeaconries close to me. We have had villages that have been ransacked. We have entire villages that have been occupied by Fulani militia. And then the people, the real owners of those communities are now living in internally displaced people's camps. So we have outreaches. We are reaching out to people who are in, in their homes. We also have to reach out to people who are in these camps, who have who have lost homes and heritage, and sometimes for them they have even lost hope. Now it's it's just to paint a little picture of the context within which we have to present the gospel of Christ. Wow! So that's super helpful. And for you folks that are listening, Falani is a uh, tribal group, a people group, spelled F as in Frank, U-L-A-N-I. So uh, mm. if you want to look that up. So, yeah, actually, when we were there, I think my, it was either my first or second visit, there was a bomb that went off in downtown Jocelyn, I believe. Uh, some 30 people were killed. Yeah. But um, let's. I want to press into this, and I want to ask you about preaching in this context, but I just I want to ask you a question about you, first of all, just you personally. Yeah. So how did you come to know the Lord? Were you raised in the church? Did you come to know the Lord later in university days? Tell us about your testimony of coming to know Christ. I've had the privilege of uh, being raised in a Christian home. That is what I mean by a Christian home is that it was normal for us to say that on Sunday we were going to church it was normal to pray before meals. It was normal to pray before going to bed. So I've had that privilege. 
But for me as a person, I didn't have a personal relationship with God, even with all those structures there. And neither did my parents have a personal relationship mm. with God. I went to the university in 1992. That was my first year where I went to study engineering. I'm an agric engineer. And for me, it was within that first week of coming into the school, the campus fellowship, the student fellowship in the campus organized a program to welcome new students. And that was it for me. My roommate invited me as a new student to just come see what they were doing. And when I got there, it was God just waiting for me. So there I gave my life to Jesus on the 17th January, uh, 1992, 1992, yes. That was the beginning of the journey. Eventually, before I left the campus, I had the privilege of serving as the, the president of the same fellowship where I gave my life to Jesus. And he gave me the opportunity to also deepen my walk with God and to also begin to find my foot in the ministry. So some of the basic and the fundamental convictions I had about ministry actually came within that period. And then years later, I now had to come in again to go into theology and, and other studies that are so related with what I'm doing now. Through me, after giving my life to Christ, salvation came into my home because it was like the door was through me. Mm. Then my parents came in into the Lord and my younger ones too. Now I have my immediate younger brother is also a Baptist pastor. I have my brothers are all in the ministry, my sister. So it all came in through me and I'm so grateful to God for that grace. Uh, my mother is still alive and she's my she's a great intercessor. She she prays for me all over as she knows all the places I'm going and I, I just know that she's on her knees praying. And it all started because she noticed that change in me when I came back for holidays and she said she knows this boy that something happened to him and she wanted to know what it was. And I told her that it's Jesus and I led her to Christ. And that was it, how the fire, the whole family got engulfed with this holy fire. That was ah. so great. Yeah. That's beautiful. Engulfed in this holy fire. So, uh, Justice, let's talk about preaching in the midst of this context. And I, I just want to ask you, first of all, a question, because I'm sure this is just really challenging and tiring. What What is the hardest most challenging thing for you personally, preaching in the context that you described? Would it be discouragement? Would it be finding the time, preaching to discourage people? I don't know. What is the biggest challenge for you personally? I think for me, one of the biggest challenges would be being faithful to the God you know. Hmm. Being faithful to the God you know. There is an African proverb that says, you do not test the depth of a river with both feet. You do not test the depth of a river with both feet. I like that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Within our context, that's in some of the villages, maybe when you send young people to go to the stream to fetch water, and it's possible it could have rained maybe upstream. And um, when they get to the stream, they would want to, if they are not careful, sometimes the, the fast flowing stream could just get people. When they do not know that, it rained upstream and it's actually deeper than they are seeing it. So they are warned, do not test the depth of a river with both feet, which means get one foot on terra firma, get something solid, and then you're trying to get a bamboo pole or something just to know how deep it is if you're going to try. Now, what it is for me is the knowledge you have of God. There are things you know about him and you know that these facts are irrefutable. These facts cannot be contested. 
This loving God you know, this all-powerful God you know, this all-knowing God that you know, this all-gracious God that you know, you know these aspects are not debatable. Then you carry that knowledge into a context of devastation where you are seeing victims of, of rape that have been raped by insurgents, where you're seeing houses of Christians that have been destroyed, where you are seeing dead bodies of children, little children that have been hacked with machetes, mm. where you are seeing churches that have been burnt, when you are seeing worshippers killed while they were worshipping, and they look at you, the pastor coming in, and they are just asking, Pastor, why? Pastor, why? And at that moment, you need to give hope, but you are looking for hope. You need to give strength, but you are weak. You need to wipe their tears, but you have been weeping. You need to tell them to be strong, but your legs are shaking. You need to assure them that God is there. But the God you know, you are trying to bring him into the context. And at that time, you are having that tension. For me, these are some of the biggest challenges. I read, um, one of those times, I read Psalm number 73. Yeah. And I found where David said that God is good to those who are pure in heart. He said, but as for me, I nearly lost my foothold when I envied the prosperity of the wicked. Then he went on and on talking about how the wicked people appear to be doing well. And then he, he came to a point, he said, in vain have I kept my hands of innocence. In vain have I kept my hands pure. Then he now paused there and said, had it been I spoke like that, I would have betrayed your children. Now that is the tension. Wow. Coming to the pulpit, knowing what you know, the God you have had a personal experience of, and yet not having the answers you would have wanted to give immediately as to why things have happened the way they have. And yet you are sure of his faithfulness. Yet you are sure that he knows the thoughts he has for you. They are good and not of evil. You are very sure of that. But you are trying to take that revelation and bring it to have meaning within the context of the meaninglessness of the devastation that you are seeing. So at that point, for me personally, it's one of those points where, as a preacher, I, I ask God for grace to be faithful to him that I know. Wow, that's really beautiful. You know, I know, and you can tell me if, if I'm correct here, it seems like one of the great temptations in the church throughout Nigeria, I believe, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is to sort of go the other direction, flee away from the suffering into a prosperity gospel. Is that a temptation for people in Joss? And then if, if so, how do, you, um, how do you address suffering um, in the midst of that context in a way that, you know, leads to hope, but not the prosperity gospel, neither despair nor the prosperity gospel? It is a reality that we're finding out to our shame that some of the denominations see it as an opportunity to pull out their stations that are in those hostile areas and then they just move out into safer areas and then continue ministry with an air of insularity as though, well, it doesn't affect us. You even hear testimonies of some of the, some churches, maybe there has been an attack in some Northeastern state, uh, states or some communities. And you hear some churches giving testimonies and celebrating and say, well, um, none of our church members was affected. Glory to God. Now that is actually nauseating. I have had to challenge one of the major, one of the major denominations. I challenged the leader, the uh, general overseer 
when he made a statement, um, some, of, some, of the, some members of his church were traveling interstate and they were kidnapped. About six people, I think, were kidnapped. And unfortunately, he came out to console the members of that denomination by telling them that they shouldn't worry that after all, this is the first time it is happening to our church. Mm. Wow. I was so disappointed. First time it's happening to your church. But I can give you statistics of pastors of different churches that have been kidnapped. Equa Church pastor was cut into two. We found his dead body uh, thrown beside behind some rocks in the um, behind the church. We have had pastors that have been burnt in churches. We have had pastors that have been kidnapped. A young boy that stays quite close to my church. He's not my church member, but he attends our youth events. He was he was a student of the University of Meduguri. He ran into Boko Haram and they kidnapped him. They gave him an opportunity to convert to Islam. He refused. They executed him openly. They videoed it and they put it out on YouTube and it went viral. Everybody saw it. He's not my church member, but we identify with the family. We mourn as Christians and we say, this is somebody that stood out for the gospel. And then this big pastor made the statement and said, it has not been happening to our church members. Now, that kind of understanding of the church is very problematic. Creating Christians that become insular, that do not know they should be their brother's keepers. Yes, it is happening. And to our shame, I can tell you that for some people, that is the easy way of dealing with this situation. Pull out your stations from there, and then you don't need to bother with the displaced people. You don't need to bother with those that have died. You don't need to bother with people who stand up for the hopeless, who will be the voice for the voiceless. You don't need to. You don't need to take up their liabilities. So that's one thing that is going on. But how do we speak into that scene of, of suffering? One of the things I've realized for us as preachers is that we sound hollow if we meet somebody that is in suffering and we say, I understand. Mm. I have now learned not to quickly say, I understand. Because you cannot understand what somebody is going through until you have sat with him in his ash. You must sit in his ash with him. So for us in jobs, it has given us an opportunity to go to the IDP camps, to find people that have lost home, have lost farmlands, have lost property, have lost life as it were. And then you still have to give them life by sitting with them. You know, Father Matt, there was one of the IDP camps that I visited. That camp was holding more than 5,000 displaced people. So I was able to organize and we got loads of mattresses. We got clothes. We got relief materials, food stuff. And we went in there thinking that, okay, we have brought some things that they needed. One of the women, as we call them to collect clothes and collect things. She collected the clothes that she was given and she threw it away right in front of us. And she was staring blankly, like looking distantly. And, and she said, did I tell you that's what I needed? Huh. And some of the people that were with me wanted to take offense. And I said, wait, 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 hold on, please, please. Let me alone with this woman. So I came and she was just looking at me. She didn't say anything. Her body was just quivering like that. I called one of our sisters, one of the women, and I said, please, would you just hold her for me? Just hold her hand and just give her a hug and say nothing. And she just came. She held this woman. She just gave her a hug, said nothing, no word, no nothing. And this woman just melted into her and busted into tears and was convulsing in tears. Wow. 
Sometimes we just assume that they need food, they need clothes, they need, no, no, no. They need somebody to let them know that they are human, somebody to sit with them in their ash. And that kind of gospel, I find that actually that is part of what God has called us to do. Isaiah said in chapter 40, he said, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her heart service has been completed. Her sins have been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Then he said, the voice in the wilderness that says, prepare the way for the Lord. But what is he supposed to do? He says, every mountain and hill shall be brought low. Every valley raised up. Every rough ground made level. The rugged places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all eyes together shall see it. To make the mountains come down for people, we need to be with them on that mountain. To bring up the valleys, we need to be with them in those valleys. That the gospel, when the Bible said in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word became flesh, this same gospel that we carry as preachers will sound hollow if they are just hearing it from the pulpit, but it has not been made flesh in the context of their devastation, in the context of their ash, in the context of their darkness and the sense of hopelessness. So that is the narrative that um, we are finding here that is making the preaching of the gospel for us um, uh, come stronger because you need to be there to be able to address somebody that is there. Wow, that is so powerful. I I have missed talking to you, Justice. Oh, <laughs> I, I love your, your in, you are engulfed with the Holy Fire, <laughs> the Holy Spirit. I, I, I notice, so when I, when I go to Nigeria, I hear preaching that's very, this worldly, it's very, um, it's grounded in the earth. You, you address political corruption, you address suffering of people. So it's not an otherworldly faith. But I notice, especially in the United compared to the United States, the preaching I hear in Nigeria focus, there is much more of a stress on eternity, on heaven and hell. Do you think that's accurate? And if so, why is there such a, an urgency around that for your people? For us, it's very important because that is how we see scripture itself, mm-hmm. that if you believe in God, then you believe in the supernatural. If you believe in the supernatural, you also need to have to believe in it in eternity because he that made time is not controlled by time. He exists outside time. So we have come to understand the reality for us. The narrative of, of eternity is very, very strong for two reasons. First of all, even before Christianity came in, the African is spiritual. The African without the gospel is spiritual. That you find that when you look at the African uh, cosmology, you find that the chart will show you that in the heavens, the African believes in the supreme God. Most of the ethnic groups and their cultures, you find that there is a belief in a supreme God that created the whole heavens and the earth. Then after him, you now have the pantheon of gods in nature. You have the gods in agriculture, the gods of the tree, the gods in the streams, the gods in the, in the rocks and all that. Then after that, you now have the ancestors. They believe in reincarnation a lot. They believe that for people who have died, if they lived well, they are given a place below the gods. They are the ancestors. Now, in African cosmology, the understanding is that the human being doesn't interact directly with that supreme God that he needs to get to the Supreme God through the mediums, 
through these spirits, through these mediums who teach the arts, who teach the rituals, who teach the forms and the things that need to be done in order to please the gods, in order to link up with the ancestors. And that through the gods and the ancestors, you the will of the supreme God comes down to, to them. So for the African, he always believes in the supernatural. If you lock up an African in a room or a Nigeria in a room, somebody that's typical from a, from a traditional heritage, you'll find that he's looking for God. It's either one of the things around, very soon he'll start worshipping that. So the sense of the spiritual is already there for the African. Now, what Christianity did is to let the African know or the Nigerian know or anybody that is into the African traditional religion know that that supreme God that you do not relate with, that supreme God that you do not know, that through Jesus, you can actually relate directly with him by passing this pantheon of gods, these demons you call gods, and then the ancestors, which do not exist, and then the mediums. That is why any missionary that comes to Nigeria will find that there is a hostile band of these mediums because they know that when people meet Jesus, they are rendered irrelevant. The people are taught how to communicate with God directly. Your Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, come boldly before the throne of grace mm -hmm. to receive grace and mercy that will help you in time of need. Your Hebrews 7, 25, that says that Jesus is able to save those who come to God through him for he stands in the presence of God interceding for them. This makes sense for the African. Now, with that, it is easy, very easy for the African to believe in the supernatural. Very easy for him. Then, believing in the supernatural, he already believes in the afterlife. Then coming to scripture again, we see Jesus teaching about it very, very clearly. So for the African, it's difficult, very difficult to convince him that there is no afterlife. I read one of the books of um, Richard Dawkins when he said that we simply cease to exist. Well, for the African, nobody wants to believe that. Even without the gospel, the African doesn't believe that we simply cease to exist. He believes that there is an afterlife. But Christianity has been able to point to him clearly and refine it very clearly so that he knows that it is God, it's in God, and that through Jesus that you are actually preparing for the afterlife by how you live here. So when we read our Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that is appointed unto man to die once, and after that judgment, it makes sense for us. Because, so when you look, I know that in the Western world, the level of secularity is higher we don't have that level of secularity here. Rather, what we have, syncretism. You have people that can come to church and at the end of the service still visit a voodoo master or you know, in, indulge in some pagan, pagan rituals. We have that. But to have a space that says there is no God and that we are, we are all living within this confine of nature and that at death we simply cease to exist. No, it's a narrative that it's pro-Western. It's coming in globalization. It's bringing it very strongly, but it's invading a space that already believed in the supernatural. So you find that a lot of preachers in Nigeria would emphasize the afterlife, either heaven or hell, depending on the person's theology and how he's able to explain it. But you find that there would be that emphasis of the afterlife. And you would also find that in the spirituality that is being exhibited by some of the pastors, if care is not taken, they could even double into spiritism, just going into syncretism, African traditional religion, and they try to Christianize it. So that is the background that makes it quite dominant in the preaching narrative in Nigeria, as well as in many African countries. I've seen that in Kenya, seen that in Uganda, seen that in um, 
South Africa, in some of those places, it's quite African. Yeah, you know, that's that's really helpful. I'm just firmly convinced that we have such cultural blinders on. I, I think we all do. And I'm sure Nigerians do as well, you know, and but I think especially in the United States, we're we're maybe not aware of our cultural blinders or we're not as willing to admit them. And so this is just enormously helpful to us to see, wow, maybe we're weird here. Maybe we're not as biblical <laughs> as we think we are. So Venerable Justice, I want to ask you one more question. And I know that you're you're very familiar with the West. You've, you've traveled, you've studied in the West, you've studied Western thinkers and atheists and agnostics and scientists. You've been trained in apologetics. And so you're well aware of our situation. So tell us, just as, as preachers in the United States or in the West, tell us what word of encouragement or challenge or exhortation would you, would you give to us as fellow preachers of the gospel? Thank you very much, uh, Father Matt. I want to say, first of all, that I have a huge respect too for you, our friends and families in the West. I want to thank God for those of you that have been so faithful to the gospel. I want to thank God for the rich history of the gospel that you had and for the sacrifices that many have made and are still making to ensure that the gospel gets to the uttermost parts of the earth, including most of the remote areas of Africa, and that many of us have tasted, many of us are beneficiaries of those sacrifices, the ones we know, the ones we do not know. But we have also seen that the West has moved into a phase wherein the worldviews have gone away from the, the core worldview that is being sustained by the Bible the Christian worldview. So the naturalistic worldview, even as we see it from the ways we see it, and naturalism, and we have many agnostics, many people are now looking at the Bible as something that shouldn't be taken literally. The revisionists are also making their own impute and um, saying it the way they think. The whole thing comes down to the fact that people do not take God seriously anymore. That is how we see it. Mm. People take God seriously anymore. People want to reformat God. That is how we say it. And for that, I will say that the gospel that came with the missionaries, the gospel that was received in Africa and many other third world nations and many other mission fields away from the West, that gospel that transformed lives, that gospel that we have tasted, that gospel that we have seen, it's power. That gospel that has confronted darkness. That gospel by which we have seen demons shrieking out of people and, 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 and fleeing. That gospel that has made us see miracles and divine interventions. That gospel that has been given to us for which many of, Afri many of we Africans are also ready to die to defend. We are seeing the agents of bringing that gospel, turning away from it, it breaks our heart. Mm. And I will use the words that one of my friends, um, Hassan John said, used when he, he spoke to a group in, in Oxford, when he told them, please, not to trivialize the gospel for which Africans are dying for. Wow. The same reason for which many people are ready to shed their blood. The boy I told you about, his name is Dapel. He's a student of the University of Meduguri. 
Boko Haram gave him an opportunity to just renounce the gospel and to say that this Bible is not real and he would have had his life. He refused. They shot him behind the head point blank. Leah Sharibu had an opportunity when her secondary school was invaded by Boko Haram and she was in the midst of other Muslim students. When they took them, they gave them the opportunity that those that were Muslims would be sent back home. And she told them she was a Christian. And they said, well, you could just say that, you could just say, la, 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 my mother is la. That's all. That was all she needed to say. And they would have allowed her to join the other Muslim girls and come back home. Leah Sharibu would not say that. She told them she was not going to say that. They said, why? She said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. She believed in that literal gospel that was taught in Sunday school, that undiluted gospel that had not been embellished by the impute of mm. scientism, by the impute of professors and scholars who have think now that they have brought out and they have found things that call for the revision of the scripture. That simple gospel, for that same reason, this young girl stood and up till now she is in captivity and she has she, she because she refused that shortcut in order to, to deny the gospel to come up. So what do I say to the our friends in the West? The Bible said that yet these remain faith, hope, and love. Only the gospel, the way we have it, gives us faith to help us look above. Only the gospel, the way we have it, gives us hope to help us look ahead. Only the gospel, the way we have it, gives us love to help us look around. And this gospel, if it is not presented with Christ as its center, with a literal understanding of some of the things he has said, then it loses its power. I went on university mission to the University of South Wales in Cardiff. And I was shocked when a couple of the students in the Christian Union asked me a question if I believed in miracles. And I said, yes, I did. And the moderator took the microphone and said, well, 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 uh, sorry, sorry. You know, he's just coming from Africa. Um, wow. And maybe he doesn't really understand. Uh, 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 well, we can understand why he said that. Uh, I just want to let you people know that miracles do not happen the way you've read them in the Bible anymore. Uh, we are no longer in that time. I said, what? And I allowed him to finish. And I, I took the microphone from him and I told him I meant what I said. Huh. I told him, if anybody wants to come to sit with me around a table, I can share testimonies of miracles, miracles again and again, even in the midst of the situations in Jaws. Father Matt, I hope you remember when I shared with you one of those instances that I had a Muslim convert that we were using to get the gospel back to the Muslim community. So it was a covert operation. It was Archbishop Ben that prayed for him and that accepted him, but he didn't want to just become a Christian and turn away from his brethren. He wanted to be used to get back to them. So he still went back. We got a house for him in that community, just at the outskirts of the community. He was still going to the mosque. He would still join them to read the Quran. And then he would throw out a question to the, their leaders. And then he will see the way people responded to the question. Then he will pick some people and meet with them privately and tell them Jesus is the answer. And then show them the Bible and show them between the Quran and the Bible. And he will take them through to shed light on who Jesus really is. 
through that ministry, Father Matt, we had 119 people that came out of Islam and became Christians. Mm. Now, one of those days, I was meeting with Archbishop Ben, and I was dressed formally in my, my collar. My children were in the car because I just took them from school. Then when I was done with the meeting, as I came back, I saw my phone was just ringing. And it was this man. As I put on the phone, he was screaming on the phone, get us out of here. We are under attack. We are under attack. They started, I said, please calm down. What is happening? I could hear the sound of gunfire in the background. And he told me it appeared that his cover was blown. Somehow they got to know he was the one doing what he was doing, bringing the gospel in a Muslim ummah. And I knew I was the one that got that accommodation for him. I was responsible for him. So I wanted to get him out of that place as quickly as possible. Father Matt, you know what I did? I jumped in my car and I started driving. My children were in the car. I, I didn't think about that. I was just trying to go through the backyard, through some farmlands to get to his house and to get him out. As I got off the road, it was a small Camry. It was bouncing on the farmlands and I was trying. I got around this huge rock, made a turn and right there, I saw this mob coming. There were some were holding rock and sticks, some were holding clubs, some were holding machetes, some with AK-47. They were coming right at us. I couldn't reverse the car. I couldn't make a U-turn. It was not a four-wheel drive car. It was a small, a small car. Yeah. We were stuck in those farm, in, in those ridges of the farm. And look at them coming. Father Matt, I was playing Christian music. You know, I just, I just toned down the music. My son was looking at me. He was in front of me. Marvel. You remember Marvel? He was sitting right in front yes, of me. Yes, I remember that then, car I, too. I've been in your yeah. car. Uh -huh. He was right with me there. Then, you know, the, the glass, the windows, I just pressed the button and the glasses just went up. The collar, my dog collar, Father Matt, I just pulled it out because once they found you with that collar, in that context, they would just set the whole car, the car ablaze with everybody inside. So I removed the collar and our bodies were just, you know, we just... And my son was looking at me when I reduced the volume of the Christian music, when I raised the glasses and then I removed the collar. And this nine-year-old boy turned to me and he said, Daddy, what are you doing? Don't you want them to know you're a Christian? Huh. That was what he said. Yeah. Now, the boy asked me that question because we have always agreed each morning at the end of our quiet time that if we stepped out and we fell into a situation where they put us on the spot, either Christianity, either your Bible or your life, we have always agreed that we would rather not deny Jesus and go to heaven to be with him. That was our family agreement. And here he was seeing daddy pulling out his collar and doing those things. And he, he didn't understand it. I looked at the boy. I looked at his younger ones behind the seat, the car, the, those ones were sleeping. And I looked at him again and I told him, I'm sorry. And I said, well, maybe today will be our day. Maybe it's, it's our day today. I took the collar and I put it back. Wow. My body was shivering and I was just waiting. Well, let it be. Father Matt, they came, the car was sitting right there, conspicuously exposed stuck in the midst of those ridges of the farm and they were just passing the car. Nobody said, what are you doing here? Nobody called out a greeting to me. Nobody shouted a hostile shout to me. Nobody touched the car. They were just passing the car and were chanting their things in Islam and passing a car that was sitting right there with me, my son, and two other boys at the back seat. 
and you with your clergy collar on. With my clergy collar on, Father. Like they didn't even see you. They, they, it was my son that was asking, Daddy, are they not seeing us? I said, I don't know. I don't huh. know. They all passed. Then I looked in the mirror. I saw even the last person that I passed. Nobody was turning back to look at us. The car, I started it. My hands were shaking on the key and my legs were shaking. And I started moving with the car and until I got to that place. Then we eventually called for a truck of soldiers to get me out. I was able to get that man out. But that was what happened. Now listen to me, Father Matt. Up till today, that young boy is about to go to university in the next year or two. But he has told his friends all over that he would serve the God of his father. And they tell him why. They ask him why. He said, because the God of the Christians protects. Hmm. And he said that we we read our Psalm 91. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. He said, it is real. I have seen it with my father. We sat in a car and these attackers passed us by. We don't know what happened. We don't know if they were not seeing us. We just don't know what happened. But God protected us. That is believing the gospel literally. Miracles are taking place today for those who believe God literally and they're willing to step out on the edge. We have amazing, in the midst of the COVID-19, in the midst of our insurgency, we have seen no matter what shakes the world, we have seen God, God being, showing himself mighty and strong. So again, let me put this as a closing remark to to our friends that are listening, that you may think you are alone. You may be a lone voice that is upholding the old-time religion, that is upholding the Bible the way you have received it, the way you have known it. You may be a lone voice that is advocating for a literal interpretation of Scripture, of upholding this God who still who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you may feel that you are not making much impact. I want you to know that the significance of a drop of water is not in its size is in its capacity to generate ripples. You can generate ripples. Hmm. Keep doing what you are doing. Somebody somewhere will hear you and gain life and find Jesus. And as you're doing it here, another person is doing it there, God is lighting the fire to prepare this generation for the coming of the King. May we be faithful until the King comes to find us doing what we've been called to do. God bless you, brethren. Oh, wow. So I feel like we didn't just have a podcast today. I feel like we had a we had a sermon from the Lord. <laughs> uh, we had a prophetic word and we had a little revival here. So this is just really such a powerful word. I am so we've we've worked hard at getting us together for this podcast, right? It's it's not been easy, but yeah, differences and uh wow, this was so worth it. Venerable Justice, okay. I am just so grateful that I Thank got a you, chance Father, to you and this. I know this is going to bless a lot of people out there. So, uh, Amen. Thank you again for joining us. Let me just can I just say a word of prayer for our, our church, our brethren in, in Nigeria? Yes, please. We yeah. Thank you for this man of God. We thank you for the work that you have done in his heart. We thank you for the church in Nigeria, the the church that is still experiencing so much suffering so much pain, so much loss and grief. And yet we have this man, this leader of the church representing so many with faith and courage and hope and a light burning bright for the gospel. May we uh, learn from these teachers. These, these are teachers, our brothers and sisters 
who just have so many resources of faith, hope, and love. Uh, so I just pray for your blessing on uh, Justice and his family and his church and the Diocese of Josh, Joss, Archbishop Kwashi, and so many friends over there, Lord. We just pray for your blessing upon them now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for joining us today. This is worth every minute on this podcast. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening. Let your hearts be stirred by this uh, beautiful prophetic word from our partners in Joss, Nigeria. It's Matt Woodley with Monday Morning Preacher. Thanks for being with us. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.